Other Side of Midnight presents... What you're about to hear is not a news broadcast. Perhaps you can help solve a mystery. This is the Murano Mystery. Ah, yes, the latest installment of our growing list of unsolved mysteries that we are eager to look into has to do with Amelia Earhart and her disappearance. Joining me to discuss it this morning is Todd Swindell. He is an investigative researcher, a filmmaker, and an aviation historian who has a great deal of interest in the Amelia Earhart case. Also has a fascinating website called protectingearhart.com. Todd, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, let's begin with the basics uh, for people that what, what sparked your interest in Amelia Earhart? Well, I uh, approached it from a, a filmmaker's uh, viewpoint back in the 1990s, a research and development of an Earhart story that came across my desk when I was with Universal. And uh, that sparked my interest. And uh, so you have been studying aviation history for a long time, right? About 30 years I've I've been into it, yeah. And for people that may be a little rusty in terms of Amelia Earhart, her life and uh, her disappearance, give us the official story first. What is the official story about what happened with Amelia Earhart? Well, uh, there really is no official story. Uh, it was left uh, for people to assume that she crashed and sank in the Pacific Ocean with her navigator, Fred Noonan, in 1937. Uh, but it w- really was something that people were left to assume. Uh, there was never an official explanation offered. There was never an official investigation into the matter. Uh, so that's about it. There was never an official investigation into the matter? No, there wasn't. So before we go into your theory and the evidence that uh, that's supporting it, why do you doubt that she just, uh, in 1937, crashed and disappeared and died that way? Well, there's an overwhelming preponderance of... Uh, circumstantial evidence and uh, testimonials uh, that says she didn't. And if you look into that uh, uh, on a serious level in depth, uh, most people get convinced uh, that uh, she did not uh, go down in the sea, that she made it to dry land. Well, you got a fascinating documentary that's coming out, and people can see the trailer at protectingairheart.com, and I suggest they watch it because there's some really compelling visuals which uh, may have made me a believer. This huh. is a piece of audio that I took from your trailer of uh, Monsignor Kelly doing uh, doing an interview on the subject of uh, Amelia oh. Earhart with uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Reinick. Uh, this yes. is Monsignor James Francis Kelly. I want people to listen to what he says and um, what he says about Amelia Earhart. Specifically, I want to know about Amelia Earhart. You say you brought her home from Japan? Yes, I was instrumental in getting her freed, and she stayed here for a while, maybe about three or four weeks, I guess. Now, that's Monsignor James Francis Kelly saying... Uh, that he was instrumental in getting her home from Japan, and he he stay she stayed here for a while, three or four weeks, I guess. Who is Monsignor James Francis Kelly? 
when was that recording from and where is here as far as we know? Here was his home in uh, New Jersey. He lived in Rumson, New Jersey. He had a Victorian mansion there. He was a very well-known Catholic priest. He died in 1996. The recording was made in September of 1991. Colonel Rollin C. Reinick uh, had heard that he had told people uh, who had reached out to him about it. And uh, he decided to uh, phone up Monsignor uh, Kelly and see if he can get some uh, the straight story from him. He even made a trip all the way to Monsignor Kelly's neck of the woods from Hawaii where he lived. Uh, so he flew from Hawaii to New Jersey and met with the guy. He was elderly, uh, but he did say a lot of other things. And in the documentary, you'll see a lot of the more recordings. Uh, you'll hear them. Um, but basically, he started telling people in the early 1980s uh, that uh, Amelia uh, did come home and he helped her assume a different identity uh, and uh, that uh, it was something where uh, part of the choice, the, the major choice was hers, uh, that she did not want to be known as the famous Amelia Earhart anymore. And uh, for reasons that really only she understood and maybe a handful of others, it wasn't, a vast conspiracy. I, I don't, uh, I don't believe it was. I, I believe it was a very controlled end of, toward the end of World War II subject matter that, uh, people who knew about it, people in official halls, uh, like a lot of things at the end of World War II, uh, let's move on. Let's just move away from this. Uh, so uh, I could say a lot about Monsignor Kelly. He he was president of Seton Hall University uh, from 1935 to 1949. Uh, uh, he knew uh, Francis Cardinal Spellman. Uh, he uh, when the uh, uh, Pope, so he's uh, a credible guy. Credible. Uh, guy. He's a, definitely is. Yeah. I mean, all right. Yeah. We're talking with Todd Swindell, uh, investigative researcher and filmmaker. You can check out his website. Protecting Earhart.com. All right, Todd, what do you think happened? I think that uh, Amelia uh, went a plan B option with her navigator, Fred Noonan. They missed uh, finding Howland Island. Uh, they stayed in radio contact. People don't know that. Uh, but there is uh, documentation uh, from intelligence records that says she, she turned north. And she eventually alighted on uh, uh, Miliato of the Marshall Islands. Uh, many testimonials support that. And there's also physical evidence. Uh, and she was picked up, uh, transferred over to uh, uh, Japan's Imperial Navy. Uh, the government did a... The Navy did a, uh, U.S. Navy did a, a two-week search effort with uh, warships and merchant vessels combing the area. But Japan, who was just about to go to war with uh, China, would not let the U.S. come close to the Marshall Islands, even though that was a highly suspected ditching place. So all of the search efforts, land and sea search efforts that uh, took place in the South Pacific Islands, never uh, came close to the marshals. And this was uh, a key area at the time. 
Um, I don't really buy into the spying theory that much. Um, the theory that she was a, a spy for the United States? Right. I'm, I'm, I, I don't think there's enough evidence to support that. There is uh, a, a lot of hearsay and innuendo, and there is some documentation that research, early researchers like uh, Fred Gorner uh, from CBS Radio in 1960s, uh, uh, Randall Brink, author of the book Lost Star, good friend of mine, uh, came out in 1994. Uh, but still, there's there's missing pieces. You have to have a smoking gun, and if you don't have a smoking gun, you can't really solve a mystery clearly. So, um, you believe she didn't die, and that she landed on this island, and she was picked up by the Japanese, and lived there. Well, she uh, was taken, uh, uh, I, I like to say she was sequestered. Uh, why are you here? You're so far off of your path. And there's there's reasons for that. Uh, she had mentioned uh, to uh, the Bureau of Air Commerce Chief, Gene Vidal, that if they missed Howland, they'd save enough fuel uh, to get back to the Gilbert Islands, which were under British uh, authority and control back then. And that was directly below uh, uh, the, uh, the Marshall Islands, part of the same archipelago. But, um, so they steered too far north, avoiding storm squalls, and they just hit, uh, Miliatol. And, uh, it's unfortunate they did, uh, because, uh, it had, uh, the, the t- at the time they were picked up, it was right when the Marco Polo Bridge incident was happening in China, which was July 7th. They disappeared on July 2nd. And uh, and from then on, that was a precursor to World War II, and uh, things started getting tense. And I think that uh, they just wanted to know what she was doing there. So um, w- aside from that audio and that testimony from Monsignor Kelly, what other evidence is there to suggest that she didn't die in 1937? There is body evidence. And you talk about a smoking gun. And when you have uh, a woman who uh, inadvertently stands accused of being the former Amelia Earhart on uh, to the national uh, media, news media in 1970, which is what happened, um, a gal named Irene Bolam uh, took on the national press circuit of New York City and uh, denied uh, that she was Amelia Earhart. Well, so let's pause there because uh, mm-hmm. we haven't mentioned that, right? So okay. you believe she survived, and we'll get mm-hmm. to what evidence suggests her her survival. But then, sure. after she survived and after she was questioned by the Japanese, she came, in your view, she came back to the United States and lived under a new identity as this woman, Irene Bolam, here in the United States. Yeah, it's a little more complicated than that. And uh, uh, a fella who had uh, been conducting a, 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 an investigation called Operation Earhart in the 1960s, it was a 10-year in-depth investigation. And he was invited by some of Amelia's old friends to come and speak on Long Island to uh, a crowd of early flyers uh, about his investigations. And he met Irene there. Irene... Her full name was Irene O'Crowley Craigmile. She married a fella in 1958 from England named Guy Bolam, 
So she became Irene Bolam at that time. Uh, but there was an original Irene Craigmile in the 1930s who Amelia Earhart knew. So the shared identity thing actually becomes an obvious reality when someone researches the real Irene Craigmile from the 1930s. Uh, there were actually a total of three different women who used that same identity in the 20th century. So Irene and, Craigmile was a pilot. It was someone that Amelia Hart had a relationship with, someone that Amelia Earhart knew. Amelia Earhart doesn't die in 1937. She comes back to the United States, and she assumes the identity of this woman who she had known previously. That's correct. Um, what became, if anything, do we know, of the original Irene Craigmile? The original Irene Craigmile goes missing. And the uh, one of the theorists I, I talked to early on uh, really felt that her demise was somehow covered over to enable this to happen for Amelia. And if you look at the, uh, the World War II file on Amelia Earhart held by J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, his fingerprints are all over this. Um, uh, he was getting reports from uh, uh, soldiers from overseas as, as, as late as 1945 toward the end of the war uh, that Amelia Earhart was alive and well uh, in, in, in the custody of Japan. Uh, and that's that's a matter of record. Anyone could look it up. So I, I just – whatever happened to the original Irene Craigmile, I don't know. I can tell you this. She had a. She uh, was flying for a little while. Right after she got her license in, in uh, mid nineteen thirty three, she met a pilot friend and became uh, a guy and became pregnant out of wedlock. Now, on your and, website, um, mm-hmm. uh, there are photos of Amelia Earhart, and then mm-hmm. there's photos using digital aging to make her look older, and then there's photos of the real Irene Bolam or Irene Craigmile later mm-hmm. in life. She looks not a little bit. She looks exactly like Amelia Earhart. She looks exactly like Amelia Earhart in the aged photo, especially. If people want to see these images, I've just linked to one of your YouTube videos showing uh, a post-1940 Irene to Amelia digital dissolve, the facial structure very similar, the teeth very similar, the facial expressions very similar. You can see it at my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. But this theory, as you, you, as you mentioned, this theory that Irene Bolam was Amelia Earhart is not a new theory. It's been around for over 50 years, right? It has. And the amazing thing about it is I, I came to know a lot of the uh, guys who were uh, uh, you know, uh, putting this forward in the 1990s, and uh, they had formed something called the Amelia Earhart Society of Researchers. Um, it's defunct now. Most of the guys were older. They were World War II veterans, a lot of them, uh, 99s members, uh but uh, I, I learned so much from them. And, uh, you know, the, the idea that Irene Craigmile uh, uh, did exist, and uh, I didn't finish that end of the story. Sure, please. She had a, uh, a, a child uh, after she became pregnant, and she stopped flying at that time. So she only logged a very limited amount of hours. But 
her, her, her picture appeared in a newspaper with Amelia Earhart. Uh, she was friends with Viola Gentry, who was also friends with Amelia Earhart. Um, when you think about the idea that you see clearly three different human beings attributed to this same identity with only the one who matched Amelia appearing that way from the 1940s on, it kind of answers itself. Um, it's not just a congruence of the face. It's a head-to-toe physical and character traits congruence that we're talking about, which is to say there's hundreds of comparisons beyond what you see on the website. Uh, there's handwriting. There's voice. There's everything. And you have not seen this before because when I talked to these guys in the 1990s and I said it was toward the late 1990s when I finally asked Joe Jervis, who met this gal, I said, has anyone ever compared her uh, physically or, or, or character traits in a forensic way to Amelia Earhart? And he was still insisting she was the former Amelia Earhart, but he said, no, no one's ever, no one's ever done that. So that's what inspired me to, to contact experts and to uh, do a, a study uh, to, uh, to, to charge forward with a forensic study that compared Irene O'Crowley, Craig Mile Bolam, the post-1940 Irene, to Amelia Earhart. Who was, and if people just tuning in, we're talking with Todd Swindell. We're not even scratching the surface of the research <laughs> he's done into this subject. you got to check out the website, protectingearhart.com. There's also some great videos on there, some great photos, and you can ju- judge for yourself. And well, I'm going to ask you about this documentary, Todd. But mm-hmm. who was the third woman who assumed the identity of Irene? The third woman was the adoptive mother of the 1934-born son of the original Irene Craigmile. So you have the original Irene Craigmile, who for some reason, by the end of the 1930s, no longer is physically evident. And the reason is, we don't know. But she was replaced by this nanny figure who ended up becoming the adoptive mother of Larry Heller, who was the 1934-born son, only child of the original Irene Craigmile. So what became of her if Amelia Earhart then assumed her identity in the 1940s? Uh, of the adoptive mother? Of the adoptive mother, mother yes. She, she lived on, and she actually uh, was somebody who, uh, I call her the former Amelia, but uh, or, or the Jervis Irene, uh, who, who knew, uh, uh, Amelia, the former Amelia helped steward the, the, uh, the raising of the original Irene Craig Miles son through with this other woman. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really gets spooky and hairy when you see on, uh, uh Irene, uh, uh Craig Miles Bolam's, uh, death was recorded in 1982. On the cover of the memorial dinner uh, program that was held for this lavish dinner, the adoptive mother appears. Uh, and it makes you wonder who really died. Did, you know, is this, is this another non-death of Amelia Earhart? Did she, <laughs> did she keep living on or, or who, which one? Cause she was considerably younger. The, the adoptive mother was a full generation. I'd say almost younger than uh, uh, the original Irene and Amelia. The original Irene and Amelia were contemporaries, 
but this gal was much, much younger. Interesting. Now, um, 1970, a book is published alleging this theory of uh, Irene Bolam being Amelia Earhart. Irene Bolam publicly and loudly says this isn't true. She sues uh, and the book is withdrawn by its publishers. There's a settlement out of court. If there was um, any evidence of this, why would the publisher not have stood up to Irene Bolam and had this case go to trial and presented their evidence in court? Actually, they did, uh, but they didn't do it the full nine yards. That trial was actually a defamation lawsuit, and Irene Craigmile sued McGraw-Hill, the publisher, and Jervis and Kloss, the, the, the fellows who had the copyright on the book, Joe Kloss wrote it. Uh, Joe Jervis, it was based on Jervis's investigation. And um, it went five years. Um, she kept postponing, uh, not showing up. Uh, but it was her lawsuit. And uh, she it's odd what she sued for. She sued for uh, being called a bigamist in the book. Uh, for being re- uh, called a traitor to her country, uh, for being referred to as Tokyo Rose. These are all things related to who Amelia Earhart would have been, not, not this woman. Irene, Interesting. Craig Milebolm. So in the end, I mean, she sues for $1.5 million. And after five years, as it wanes down, Jervis, Joe Jervis tells his lawyer, you know what? I'll, we'll cave in. We'll give in. We want proof positive of her identity and uh, requested her fingerprints. Uh, she refused to be fingerprinted, uh, turned down that uh, $1.5 million award and settled with Jervis and Kloss uh, for $10 of consideration exchanged by both sides. And McGraw-Hill did end up paying her $60,000 for poor fact checking in the book. Hmm. But that was it. There was, it had, the trial had nothing to do with whether she was the former Amelia Earhart or not. And, and people don't get that. They don't understand that. Uh, now that's fascinating. I had known about this woman's existence, but I had no idea that a simple fingerprint test could have put this all to rest. Why do you think, and I realize we're in the area of speculation here. Why do you think Amelia slash Irene would deny that she was Amelia Earhart? What would she have to gain by carrying on this this farce for decades? Well, when you think about that, and <clears throat> she did not want to go back to being the famous Amelia Earhart anymore. If you look at the profile of Amelia Earhart's character uh, throughout her nine years of fame, she was not very happy with being a famous person. Uh, she had announced that she was going on her last great flight. She had introduced Jackie Cochran as the next queen of the air. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that do add up to say, okay, somebody's recognized me, but I have a lot of power and a lot of influence behind me to stand by my denial. Uh, back then you couldn't, you just run out and do a DNA check. You couldn't just, and you know, she never, what are you, who's going to get her, who's going to do a black 
bag job on her house and get fingerprints. I don't think anybody ever really did that. Um, they just accepted her denial and let her walk away. And she did. And people forgot about the story. Uh, you know, there's, I interviewed Joe Jervis in the documentary. It was the last interview he did in 2002. He died in 2005. And uh, I asked him point blank, do you still believe that uh, Iron Craig Mile Bolam was a former Amelia Earhart? And he says, yes, I do. And there's other people who did too, you know, who do too. So um, it sends a chill down you to know that there's all these other theories out there and people have been pushing these uh, cottage industry stories forward. But there's only one truth. And you have to go where the bulk or the, the key evidence uh, exists and promotes what it promotes. There's no other evidence that promotes any other theory other than hearsay innuendo. But there is an overwhelming preponderance of circumstantial and uh, uh, detailed evidence, uh, documented evidence that says this happened. You alluded to J. Edgar Hoover, the former head of the FBI's fingerprints being all over this. What do you believe the government, our government, actually knows about this uh, switcheroo of uh, Irene assuming the identity, Amelia assuming the identity of Irene? And have you tried to do a FOIL request for any documents that would reveal what the government does actually know? Yeah, well, Freedom of Information Act, I think you're referring to things like that. But um, it, I'm not even sure there's many people left in Washington, D.C. that pay much attention to this today. Um, it, it, it had been uh, pretty much cleared uh, by the mid-1980s after she died. Uh, and uh, the son of the original Irene Craigmile, who I know, uh, identified the adoptive mother and not uh, the uh, post-1940 Irene. Uh, very, he's still living today. Um, but, uh, you know, I just don't think there's that many people uh, who in Washington who would know where to look uh, for information. Randall Brink did a great job under, uh, uh, you know, finding the Morgenthau files and spent a lot of time in Hyde Park uh, Library and uh, FDR's files. Uh, and he, he got some good stuff. But, uh, uh, for instance, uh, nine months after Amelia's gone, Eleanor Roosevelt gets a request, uh, from, uh, Jackie Cochran to, to, that she thinks more searching should be done or they, they should keep at it. Sure. And, uh, and they, uh, 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 Roosevelt's administration, Henry Morgenthau Jr., one of his right hand men says, uh, we have, we can't uh, give out any information. We have confidential information. And I just hope I never have to make it public. So there's a lot of things you could do with that. What is he talking about? But he was talking about something. And what he was talking about, you, you, you point to the Marshall Islands testimonials of so many people and so many World War II veterans who add up this, do this neat math problem that adds it up to her ending up there under some sort of precarious circumstance where maybe they sh they thought she died or had to assume so much, but then later realized, oh, she didn't. And come the end of the war, Monsignor Kelly's there helping out. I mean, this guy, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and, you know, they have these uh, federal witness protection programs and 
they contrive these things. I had never seen or heard of it with a famous person before. Right. I guess, but, I guess what I'm not clear is what interest would the FBI have in being a part of this con on the public? Just to, just to leave Amelia dead. She was, she, <laughs> Amelia Earhart was legally declared dead mm-hmm. in, in 1939, two years after she disappeared. She was declared dead in absentia. So you want to rebirth her? At the end of World War II and, and cause more consternation when we're trying to settle differences with Japan and, and, you know, like we were with Germany, getting their rocket technology, getting Japan's radio technology. We, there was all kinds of reasons that people wanted to move on from this. Uh, they, they just did not want to go back and say, Oh, here she is. Now let's go get the people who did this. And she probably said, don't let me live a private life from now on. I'm sick of that famous stuff. I'm sick of what happened to me. I don't want to have to talk about it. I don't want to have to say where I was or what I was doing for those eight years I was gone. If I say I'm Amelia Earhart now in 1970, I'm going to get one question after another asked me about those things, and I don't want to have to sit up and have to answer them. Now, if the Japanese did interrogate her and they did find her after her 1937 disappearance, you would think the Japanese government would have some sort of a record of that. Have you have you looked at those records and what, if anything, have you found from the Japanese end of things? Well, from the Japanese end of things, uh, there were reports in Tokyo uh, just about 10 days after Amelia disappeared that, uh, that she was picked up in the Marshall Islands. And those all got muted. Uh, <clears throat> there is record of uh, headlines from INS News uh, direct from Tokyo uh, that this, is, this was conveyed and reported. But suddenly that goes away. And you have uh, World War II soldiers in Japan uh, after the war uh, finding magazine articles with Amelia's picture in Japanese magazines. These are all listed in FBI files. Um, so, you know, I just think that there was also the, 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 the Gilberts were British controlled and they had great archives down there in Tarawa. Uh, that World War II uh, veterans, uh, that soldiers who were serving at the time, were made privy to. So the way I see it is there's a post-war connection and an alliance, uh, and I, I'm not calling it a vast conspiracy because I don't like that word, but it's uh, between Japan, the United States, and England, hmm. some kind of hush-hush thing about let's move on and let's let her be, let's let her have peace. Let's not go back. She doesn't want to go back. We'd rather her not go back. Let's just do this thing. And um, the families of both uh, any living relatives of Amelia Earhart and the son of Irene Bolam, they're mm-hmm. not on board, neither of them, with this theory, right? Publicly anyway? Not publicly. Uh, Amy Klepner is the closest living relative to Amelia. She's the, the her, her niece, the daughter of Amelia's sister, Muriel. And uh, she knew Irene. 
she, <laughs> they were friends. And you know, it's, it's funny because she, she, as soon as it was made public, she was very demonstrative about it needing to go away right away. Mm-hmm. She even wrote McGraw Hill saying, don't, Publish this book. All right, uh, Todd. Uh, uh, I yeah. can't wait to see this documentary. You've pitched. You piqued my interest. When can people see it? How can people see it? It's scheduled for May twentieth, which is uh, marks the anniversary of uh, uh, Amelia Earhart's uh, solo flight uh, across uh, the Atlantic, and uh, uh, that uh, uh, is when it's, it's supposed to premiere. I'm going to be doing uh, press screenings in New York. I'm going to be doing press screenings in Los Angeles. Great. Well, we'll get you in studio um, to do some follow-up on that when you're in New York. That'll be fun. And if there's a screening here in New York, I'll certainly be there. Okay. I appreciate it, Frank. Thank you. you. Todd Swindle, mm-hmm. check out the website, protectingairheart.com. 